0: Welcome to Policy Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith, and in this week's episode, ASPE's Leanne Close speaks with Professor Boaz Gannor about his recently published ASPE report, Terrorism is Terrorism. And ASPE's Dr. Huang Li Thu speaks to Penny Burt, Group CEO of AsiaLink at the University of Melbourne about the response to COVID-19 from ASEAN nations. But first, ahead of the International Day of UN Peacekeepers on May 29th, Lisa Sharland, Head of ASPE's International Programme, speaks to Major General Cheryl Pierce, Force Commander of the United Nations Peacekeeping Force in Cyprus. They discuss her experiences as Force Commander, COVID-19's impact on the mission, and the importance of women in peacekeeping.
1: Well, I'm delighted to welcome back uh, Major General Cheryl Pierce to the ASPE podcast today. Welcome, Cheryl. Thanks, Lisa. Well, it was great to be here. I think it was about 18 months ago that we we had you on the podcast, and it, it was just before you were about to take up your new, new role as, as force commander.
2: So I guess a fair bit has changed in the world since then. Look, it has. I uh, reflect back, and I would nearly say with my, um, I still have the optimism, but probably my naivety and, uh, and what would be what a simple, Um, environment is actually very complex and uh, is challenging and rewarding in so many ways I had never considered. I'm sure many people could appreciate
1: that, not just in the context of where you're operating, but certainly around the globe and some of the geopolitical shifts that we're seeing at the moment. We're quite keen um, to have a discussion with you today, um, because May 29th marks International Day of, of UN Peacekeepers. And and for some of our listeners who may not be that familiar with UN peacekeeping, there are at the moment 13 peacekeeping missions across the globe. There's just under a hundred thousand military, police, and civilians serving in those missions. Um, they operate with an approximate budget of about um, US $6.5 billion. And the mission that you are the force commander in at the moment, the UN mission in Cyprus, has been in operation for about 56 years. Um, so ma- that makes it one of the longest missions that has been running um, under the UN blue flag. So I thought we might start there and um, get you to tell us a little bit about the mandate of um, what is referred to as UNFICYP and um, some of the challenges that
2: you're currently facing on the ground there in Cyprus? No, look, thanks, Lisa. Yes, UNFASIP, or the United Nations Forces in Cyprus, is, has uh, been going since 1964. And then uh, on 1974, there was a reoccurrence of fighting for which uh, we had some additional tasking. But in the main, it's about um, using our best efforts to prevent a reoccurrence of fighting, to contribute to the maintenance and restoration of law and order and a return to normal conditions. It does sound quite simple in its uh, purity of uh, that mandate, but that was a 1964 mandate and it referred to the whole of the island for which there are over 6,000 forces, UN forces here. We're now down to just over um, 800 military uh, and a mission of just over a thousand, and really our area of responsibility has come down to a what we call a buffer zone, which is 180 kilometres long, ranging from the width of a road in some areas up to seven kilometres in others, and it divides the island uh, for the north and uh, the so-called. TRNC and the South Republic of Cyprus. Um, It's a split between the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots. And look, it has been, um, there is a lot of emotion involved with it. Um, There is, uh, hasn't been political talk since uh, 2017 with a breakdown at Crans Montana. My role is very much to maintain the calm and stability and to prevent a reoccurrence and fighting in order to allow political um, dialogue to occur, to achieve a peaceful political solution going forward.
1: I guess at the moment, one of the, the pertinent questions to ask is how has that mandate or how has the work of the peacekeeping mission there been impacted by COVID-19?
2: Look, it has quite significantly. The buffer zone had a number of crossings uh, open up and uh, first one in 2003 and then the uh, last one in twenty end of 2018. And this has really opened up the island for for trade, for working in North and South, and it really started to engender that high bi-communal conversations and really a lot of the committees that the UN has established um, working well together. Uh, With COVID, um, both the North and the South have taken a similar response, but have gone very inwardly focused. And so all the crossings have closed. And uh, it is really separate, two separate communities on on a single island. And for us, it's um, in maintain the calm and stability. The two opposing forces um, are challenging uh, the narrative and uh, maintaining the military status quo in that area um, is difficult. Maintaining the calm, and it's quite interesting. When you say maintain calm, it sometimes seems, well, that's quite simple, but it, takes, it does take a lot of effort to do that. And uh, it could be the opposing forces. It could be farmers. It could be... Dog hunters, it could be a number of um, different elements of both the community and uh, the military forces that actually challenge that calm and stability because a buffer zone is actually not sterile as you would imagine, you would probably imagine. It's actually 80% of the buffer zone is farmed. There's some areas that aren't, but that's in the mountainous areas to the west, but it is an active buffer zone for which we have the mandated authority um, to manage, and uh, that's uh, that's quite problematic in itself. From a COVID perspective, with the crossings closed, uh, we live amongst the community. For us, it's our own force preservation. For the military, look, I find it uh, does keep me awake at night at times. Um, we are trying to deliver on the mandate as well as maintain a force um, preservation. And they live in camps. They live on top of one another. It is um, anywhere from four to eight, generally in a in a um, in a room. That is your team, and that is a team that we've adjusted our patrolling. That so, if we do get a um, positive cases, if one in the team goes down, the whole team goes down, and we isolate. But it's trying to preserve a lot of the forces so that even if we do have a number of COVID cases, which we have, if they were still able to um, operate and deliver on the mandate. And then additionally, I have forces in the north, I have forces in the south. So, you know, aligning to both the restrictions placed by the north and the south is also difficult and the movement between the two is also problematic. Um, very much, um, we're supporting the Republic of Cyprus. The UN um, is very sensitive to meeting host state requi- requirements from a COVID perspective and we really generally will go over and above and be extra cautious based on um, UN history, ensuring that uh, UN personnel are not the, not the carriers of the infection and, um, and uh, whilst we still continue to have community infection transfer we um very much we don't want it to be seen to be un in that space so um you know for here i'd say cyprus is republic of cyprus is very similar to australia we've had um it, it's had quite we've had curfews um quite strict lockdowns um we have had uh, restriction of movement which is very similar the schools are just debating on opening um, shops are just starting to um, open the smaller ones we don't have any large indoor uh, we're on a heat wave at the moment the um, beaches are not open um, nor pools so it's um, really a you know a first world issue I get it but it's certainly um, for Cypriots it's a very you know it, they are chafing to uh, get to have the restrictions lifted but they are really abiding by um the government direction and we're seeing a real reduction to just small numbers daily now
1: I can imagine this wasn't a, a challenge that you were expecting you'd, you'd have to address when you were contemplating coming across to to Cyprus to take up this role
2: no certainly not it's um it's actually though been really good because it really challenges your thinking about what's what's normal what's in what's important what um how we operate you know we we talk about how we communicate. What is what's important for uh, the whole UN force, and a lot of the the UN permanent members are all telecommuting, um, aligned to New York. Uh, for the military, we can, in some instances, do we we use a, a platform called Teams, Microsoft Teams. We can use that, but when you have a diversity of Culture. We have a diversity in in language. Sometimes it's, um, and uh, we just don't have sufficient um, number of IT systems. We can't always operate in a manner that um, is aligned. Additionally, military are generally teams based um, organizations. They work as teams, and to socially isolate um, is quite difficult. And then we have the opposite, where we have a lot of the forces on top of one another in a camp. So. Um, there are challenges that um, we had an experienced, but it's also some opportunities. It's about how do we do business better, and um, I think it's enabled many individuals to dig deep about their own um, – a lot of time for self-reflection and a lot of time to what's important and what's not. I think you do cut away from uh, – all the superficial busyness that you had. I'm more busy than I ever was but um, sometimes you'd look at the the churn that we create and can we can we actually do better in that space?
1: I, I have no doubt there's a lot of lessons there that, that people can perhaps relate to not necessarily in a military context but but certainly in some other areas. but on that point of um, the the force component and the work of the military component over there, You've had many different positions in your career with the Australian Defence Force. And I was wondering, how does your role as force commander in a UN
2: peacekeeping mission differ from some of those roles that you've had throughout your career? Um, look, I would say um, being being a leader, being authentic, your being your authentic self is, it uh, really will shift from whatever environment you're in and you'll you'll lead to the best of your ability in those and operate. Um, what I did find, if I just keep on the leadership theme, is it varies between nationality. Um, Australia has a very mission command um, style, which is very different to many, many nations. And uh, whilst we in Australia have worked with um, like-minded nations uh, on training courses, the multinational forces that I've got here, I've got 14 different nationalities, it is often different, very culturally diverse, very um, they're the way they're trained is very different, so leadership has to be looked at quite differently. You really have to test and adjust and ensure that um, uh, that what you're saying can be heard in the means by which you you meant it to, to be said. Um, they more a lot of the countries are seeking a more prescriptive um, style of leadership, but very much um, I would say across the militaries, it's still all values based. So what I do take um, real. Um, real sort of joy in it and the pride of being part of a military is um, is that we are a values-based organisation and it doesn't matter what your nationality nationality is, um, that that will come through. Uh, my other observation is, is all of my career I have been trained to command on operations. Afghanistan, I, I did find stepping in, I was well prepared, I stepped in and um, it didn't take long to pick it up. Um, I was really surprised um, on how long it took me to settle within the UN, not so much just in commanding of the force. That was probably, whilst it had some um, initial teething and, you know, different cultures, different backgrounds, um, different ways of communicating, it was still a military. Working within the UN construct was um, was different again. I have um, the military component is one of three, which have got the, the uh, United Nations police and also we have a, a civilian component and we all then work to a um, special representative secretary general which is very much a political um, component and we are there to support that political outcome and how the UN thinks and how all the other components thinks and add in the number of different nationalities it becomes a really diverse um, environment for which trying to understand different policies, procedures, there's learned behaviours, there's a whole lot of nuances. It does just take that little while to, um, to, to settle in. So certainly um, very enjoyable, real challenges. Um, and then you add in working within Cyprus, which is um, completely a different culture again in the Cyprus problem for which we're here to support the Republic of Cyprus and the two leaders to work towards is um, you know that is a real challenge, and there's some really deep seated emotion and some really deep seated positioning on the issue, and uh, to work towards that takes a lot of patience and um, really good active listening, and you know things that you you develop over your time in your career, but very different environments to what um, traditionally Australia has um, been involved with.
1: I'm sure many of the the points that you've raised there in terms of the the different environment of UN peacekeeping missions, um, there are a number of aspects that I have no doubt many people could relate to. It's certainly a complex endeavour that's that's undertaken on the ground. One of the points I wanted to reflect on um, and, and discuss a little bit with you was um, the theme for this day, um, the International Day of UN Peacekeepers this year, is women in peacekeeping are key to peace. Uh, and as some people would be aware, the UN peacekeeping mission in Cyprus um, had the first female force commander. Um, uh, a couple of years ago uh, with uh, General Lund uh, from Norway. And uh, you were the second woman uh, to take up the role of force commander across uh, all peacekeeping missions, UN peacekeeping missions, that is. And one of the other things that's been unique about the UN peacekeeping mission in Cyprus, of course, is that the leadership team at various times has, has consisted largely of, of women. So I I thought it'd be interesting to get your personal reflections on um, or observations on uh, how has that impacted the mission and I appreciate it could probably only be anecdotal um, but I'd be interested if you had any reflections you could share on that, particularly given the theme this year.
2: Uh, Look, Lisa, I always smile when I think about that because, you know, being born in Australia and uh, as a female, I go, from what perspective am I coming from? Um, You know, I've led and commanded uh, throughout my career and I have, my style and my approach and uh, I work within whatever environment I have, male or female. What unfaIP and what we have in a senior leadership and a, a you know a greater number of females is actually what I think everyone looks for and that's a diversity of thought, the intellectual curiosity. it brings um, an inclusive environment for which everybody um, can operate. UNFASIP is really good uh, here in Cyprus that every job can be done by a um, male or female. So it's really based on what um, member states can provide. Um, the permanent membership by th- uh, members, I think, feels just under 50%. The police are at 35% and uh, military. Um, we are a lot lower. We're uh, just under 12%. But in UN peacekeeping missions, that's a lot higher than many of my, my sister missions. What it brings to the table is um, is that diversity of thought and a really uh, more of a collaborative style of operating. Um, I found that in most instances, though, I think when you get to senior leadership, you tend to be a lot more collaborative. You have to be, have and include that diversity of thought. And I've been very fortunate in many of my jobs um, in more recent years where I've had that. Uh, more so here, but also then as a reflection of the community, Um what uh, our engagement and part of living with the community, we also then um, get to be involved with a lot of the community activities. And for that, we certainly um, see the complexity of the issues from the community. Uh, we witness the desire for peace building. And it really is that focus of um women having a voice and especially within the community we live in a patriarchal society here and for women to have a voice and women to have influence in decision making and power um, if having a female leadership team at UNFASIP and our engagement with them um, is uh, enhances that well then that's great but equally I uh, my relationship I have a strong um Uh, engagement um, priority with my two opposing force commanders. I have a Turkish Forces General and a National Guard General, both male. Um, I don't feel um, that my gender inhibits uh, my ability to communicate and establish those relationships. It becomes very professional of who you are and what you do. And uh, So, gender doesn't tend to um, really play into the roles and responsibilities we have, um, feel that we can do everything that uh, is required of us here. What it does do, though, it enables um, the more juniors, so I would say junior peacekeepers. So, what we do, you know, we're role models in, in, for some, we'll never be role models for all um, but you know for the young peacekeepers that are out there for women is to say, "Hey, give peacekeeping a go um and uh, to represent your nation and to represent um and or and to serve under the u n flag is a real real privilege and very proud to do so so to continue to build because it's by word of mouth um a lot from a peacekeeping if I can influence senior defense leaders um globally if I can be as um be a part of force commander here, but part of the UN family more broadly, and uh, influence the um, development of young females in militaries um, to then become leaders in future UN missions. I think is is a great um, is a great step and a great opportunity for m- for my contribution. Um, I work well with uh, the senior leadership here. It has just changed over, and our police commander is a um, Chinese um, senior police advisor. And uh, unfortunately, since she's been here, she's been in um, isolation. She arrived just at the beginning of COVID. She self-isolated for a couple of weeks and uh, then mainly it has been telecommuting. So we really actually haven't got to know one another um, well at this stage. But look at... It is working well here. I think um we are really valuating. Um but in a day as we head towards Peacekeepers Day and uh, women in peacekeeping. Um, we do need to reflect the communities for which we serve and we do need to uh, be able to contribute right across all missions in, in numbers, in all roles and responsibilities. Um, it's got to be greater than just in the gender. Advisor has to be in um, everything from leadership, the operations, the planning um, can be in the community base. We are an essential element of capability and you know we're half of most societies you know we're half the talent and we reflect that on the ground you know the communities that we work in uh, uh, represent where we come from in numbers so i do think it's a great opportunity to um Take the time and the moment to continue to um, look at what our female peacekeepers contribute, but also look at how far we still have to go, especially within the military.
0: No, I think
1: they're a- they're absolutely very fair points, and I think the points about the visibility and leadership and, and engaging across the community are, are so important in terms of the work that UN peacekeeping does. One final question, but before we wrap up our discussion, um, before you took up this role, you served as um, the commandant of the Australian Defence Force Academy, which um, is involved in in training future leaders in the military. And I guess reflecting on some of that time and, and the work that you've been doing um, as force commander over the last 18 months, I was curious to, to ask you, do you think there are some lessons that uh, Australia can draw on
2: in terms of how it engages with UN peacekeeping? Look, I do. I think there's some real parallels. I think it goes back to the basics. I talked about values. And if you we teach our future leaders and it's more than teaching it's educate it's about in um, character development and um, developing their character to be an authentic values-based leader and it is 24-7 they'll work in in environments and on operations where these values will not always be aligned to others um they will be challenged and is to hold true who who you are and what your values are and that will then come through uh in spades in in your leadership and um working both within the mission that you serve but also within the community which you support and um I also would say that we really have to be um, cautious of our own biases as a, as a Western culture and that of Australian. And You don't really think about it until you start serving um, in a multinational force. And uh, for that is some of the things that Australians, I think, and myself personally as well, is patience. I go hard and I continually to want to move quicker than sometimes I need to. And sometimes I just learn to come back around and collect because it is about ownership by all and 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 I teach that taught that to my admonitio through um, our young cadets but I'm now living that now and so it's good to see that what we were thinking about is is very true Um, really have to be attuned to cultural values and not to force our own onto others Um, I think one of the things about intellectual curiosity that we talk about At ADFA and we talk about wherever we are is is generating that intellectual curiosity no matter what your background and that diversity and and inclusive environment is so important wherever you work. Perception, um, really uh, check yourself on your own perceptions of what Australians are, what we can do. Um, how we fit within a global community. Um, You know, our region here in Cyprus is so different. Regional security is so different to what we know um, in our region in Australia. And just your approach to command and leadership. I do believe that the Australian command and leadership, the uh, leadership approach is, uh, is on the mark. Um, we we do produce excellent young leaders. I've had a small team here with me supporting, and they they are a real what we call a force multiplier. They're valuating at every level, and um, I'm very proud of uh, my team here. And uh, they they are products of our Australian um, officer development system. So I'm um, I think we're in good stead at home. It's just about the nuances around working um, in a UN multinational force with many member states that we haven't previously. Had the opportunity to train and uh, work with.
1: No, I think you've you've highlighted obviously some of the important um, qualities and and. Um strengths I think that that many ADF personnel can bring to bear to UN peacekeeping um, and uh, I think you've highlighted that through the work that you've been doing in um, Cyprus these last 18 months so um, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the podcast today and taking some time out of um, managing some of the many challenges that are on your plate
2: at the moment. No look thanks Lisa it was a great chance to um, touch base with you again and uh, really reflect back over the last 18 months since I last spoke to you and uh and just on my own journey since then and um, look forward to the chance to uh, catch up with you again in the future. Wonderful. Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: Next, we hear from Leanne Close, head of ASPE's terrorism program, in conversation with Professor Boaz Ganor about some of the key findings from his recent ASPE report, Terrorism is Terrorism, the Christchurch Terror Attack from an Israeli Perspective.
3: So welcome, Professor Boaz-Gonorne. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, In 2019, while you were on sabbatical with ASPE as a visiting fellow, you were researching the actions of Brenton Tarrant, the 28-year-old right-wing activist who attacked two mosques uh, in Christchurch, New Zealand on 15th of March 2019. Uh, During that 40 minutes of terror, we know that Tarrant murdered 50 people and injured dozens more. We've released your report in ASPE, Terrorism is Terrorism, the Christchurch Attack from an Israeli Perspective, where you've analysed the different phases of the attack. Uh, and interestingly, you found great similarities between the actions and words of Tarrant, which he'd published online in his manifesto shortly before the attacks, uh, and then you compared that with the Islamist jihadist terrorists' propaganda that they issue before and post-terror attacks, so just wondering if you could outline for us your key findings from your research.
4: First of all, thank you for having me uh, on the program, Leanne. Uh, it's really a pleasure uh, to uh, talk to you and actually to do this uh, specific analysis for ASPI. I was eager because, you know, I'm, I'm in the field of counterterrorism for many years, more than uh, 25 years, and I never looked into the uh, problem of uh, extreme right uh, neo-fascist type of terrorism because naturally in Israel we are preoccupied with Islamist jihadist type of uh, of terrorism altogether but since I was asked to look into the Christchurch attack and I, I was fascinated to find so many similarities between what I know about terrorism and the uh, this specific type of terrorism uh, right-wing terrorism. and The importance of those findings, I think, are great because uh, um, this is a growing threat. The white uh, extremism, white supremacy type of uh, terrorist attacks is not just a New Zealand or Australian problem. This is a growing problem globally. And that's why those findings, I think, are are very relevant. And going back to your question, Trent uh, was uh, giving a lot of attention to the manifesto. Uh, at first, he wrote uh, uh, the first manifesto that held about 240 pages. Uh, think about how much time he spent on that manifesto, but he wasn't satisfied with that, so he destroyed that, and then he wrote another manifesto of 74 pages that was published. And I read every single of that, and I was so fascinated to see the common denominators in the argumentation that he was using, comparing to the manifestos of Islamist jihadists and the propaganda, and so on and so forth. So to a few of them, uh, altruism. Uh, when you when you read the manifesto of Trent, uh, you see that he's saying I'm I'm actually ready to give my life for a greater cause, for the cause of the Anglo-Americans all over the world. It reminded me the suicide attackers, the Islamic jihadist suicide attackers, that they're saying we are ready to sacrifice our life for uh, the cause of Islam. Uh, you know, we had a case uh, in Israel when a suicide attacker was taking his last photo and he demanded that uh, there would be a, a, a Photoshop uh, correction in which his head artificially is being cut off and put on, on his open hand on the picture. Why was that? To show that he's ready to give his head, his life, for a greater cause, altruism. Another Another common denominator Uh, would be the argumentation that what we do practically, both Trent and the Islamist Jihadists, is that we are fighting a defensive war. We are not the one who are aggressive or offensive. We actually being dragged to that by, Trent would say, the invaders. uh, The Islamist Jihadists would say the the crusaders, whoever. uh, But that's the same concept. Another concept is the wake-up call. Uh, Trent was arguing. Look, I'm just doing that as a symbol, as a wake-up call for others to to uh, copycat what I'm doing. To be, I, I want to become a model, exactly as the Islamist jihadists are, for example, talking to homegrown terrorists or or foreign fighters, which they call to join uh, uh, the fight of of the caliphate in in Iraq or in Syria. Uh, the urgency, the sense of urgency. This is something that needed to be done. Now, in order to save, to save who? To save the white tradition and culture in Europe, in Australia, in the United States, or to save Islam uh, from those who wants to attack Islam altogether. The concept of uh, fear, the modus operandi. Uh, we all know that terrorism, it's all about terrorizing at the end of the day. Terrorists are eager to terrorize. Tra- Tarrant wanted to terrorize other uh, immigrants, he actually wanted to send a message to immigrants from all over the world: Don't dare to immigrate to a Western country altogether. That is the message. The same message is those uh, is the attacks that are being conducted by Islamic Jedi, say in Europe or other places altogether, terrorizing much bigger crowd than those of the victims themselves. Honor, the concept of honor. We want to regain the honor. We want to go back to the. A status quo ante. We want to create a historical justice to correct the wrongdoing of history altogether. Same concept. Last but not least, the concept of revenge. We didn't start that fight. We are actually revenge the killing of innocent Muslims or innocent white uh, 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 Westerners uh, all over the world. It's, it's amazing. How close the uh, the ideological argumentation in those two tracks, and that led me uh, to understand, uh, and that's the title of the report that uh, we gave to Aspi. That terrorism is terrorism is terrorism, regardless who is doing that. If those are white supremacists, if those are Islamist jihadists, if those are Jewish terrorists, whoever are doing that, they are from the same. Uh, state of mind and and the same concepts.
3: It was really interesting analysis, that comparative and how close it was. So as a result of your research, what recommendations did you make for intelligence and law enforcement agencies who are involved in combating terrorism?
4: Well, I have many recommendations. I won't go over all of them. I would just uh, expect the the listeners and the viewers actually to read the report and and, and, uh, read the recommendations. But I would say one or two main recommendations that came uh, uh, to my mind. When we talk about lone wolf attacks, and and Tarrant in in that that, uh, respect was a lone wolf. The main problem in the lone wolf, when you want to thwart an attack like that, is that usually they don't leave a rather signature, an intelligence rather signature. Because in many cases, those are spontaneous attacks. The attacker doesn't know that he's going to attack on the same morning when he get out of his home, go, going to his car, driving to his work. He didn't make it to attack, but then suddenly triggered him. Uh, something triggered him and he decided to commit the attack. This is something which is almost impossible for intelligence to intercept because there is no intelligence radar. And even if he planned that for a few days so... Usually those attacks are called weapon attacks. He needs a knife, he needs the car keys. Uh, This is something that intelligence cannot uh, look for. Intelligence can uh, look for uh, uh, signature intelligence such as purchasing weapons, uh, training, uh, surveillance which is being made by the terrorist and, and, and collecting intelligence on potential targets. There are many points of intervention. All of those points of interventions, almost all of them, were overlooked in the case of uh, Tarrant, because although Tarrant was a lone wolf, he was not a typical lone wolf. He didn't use, he didn't conduct the round down with his car attack. He didn't take a knife to attack. He purchased five rifles, uh, automatic guns. He uh, he actually trained in, uh, in a, a shootout in, in uh, Dundee. He had many, rather signature, He was involved in the uh, 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 propaganda activity of white uh, uh, extremists uh, for two years before the attack, okay? He published uh, the picture of his rifles with with symbols that show that he has uh, uh, malicious intention about two weeks before the attack. All of those were overlooked. And I was actually crushed with the fact that a foreign citizen can come to new zealand yes it's an australian it's as close as possible to a local citizen but still is a foreign citizen and can purchase guns train in a, in a shootout in this regard and this doesn't raise the alert signs f- from anybody so the main problem is an intelligence problem i believe that didn't connect the dots between the radical clear philosophy that he held uh, by this uh, Social network interaction that he had, which was clearly there, with the fact that he has signature rather of purchasing guns, training on them, and so on and so forth. Nobody connects the motivation to the capabilities, and that's what intelligence needed to do altogether. The second problem is public awareness. You know, it reminded me the case of Zakaria Musawi, uh, the 20th 9 uh, uh, /11 attacker in the United States. This was a person that was signing into a, a pilot course in Florida. And when he learned how to fly, the instructor calls in the FBI and says, my student doesn't want to learn how to take off or how to learn, how, how to learn. just how to fly, that's suspicious. And he was arrested before the attack. It wasn't enough for the FBI to prevent the attack, but it shows the awareness of that instructor. I would expect this type of awareness from parent instructors, from people that were associated with him, and so on and so forth, because public awareness is a key factor factor in prevention of terrorism, and this was not the case in New Zealand.
3: Oh, look, thank you so much, Professor. We could talk about this for for many hours, there's so many aspects to your report. It certainly uh, provides a really compelling uh, analysis into the mindsets of terrorists, and as well as opportunities for people who are involved in preventing and disrupting terrorist actions to have a look at the planning continuum that you outline in the report, as well as those motivation factors. So, look, thank you so much for giving us your time today and giving us your insights into terrorists and their ideology. Uh, for thank our you audience, for
5: me.
3: Uh, thank you. Yeah, for our audience, you can find Professor Ganall's report at ASPE's website or online in The Strategist. Thanks.
0: Finally, Senior ASPI analyst Dr Hong Lee Thu spoke to Penny Burt, Group CEO of AsiaLink at the University of Melbourne, about the response to COVID-19 from ASEAN nations, information sharing in the region, and ASEAN's effectiveness in
5: managing the COVID-19 crisis. In our podcast series, we have looked at how individual countries in the region cope with the COVID-19 pandemic. You can tune in and hear our previous podcast talking about Indonesia, Vietnam, Myanmar, and more to come. Today, I have a pleasure to discuss regional responses of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, with Group. Welcome Penny to the program. So ASEAN region has experienced a number of previous outbreaks uh, before, such as SARS, H1N1, H5N1, and so on, um, and this regional body has held multiple dialogues on preparedness for infectious diseases, pandemics, for more than a decade now. Yet, when the novel coronavirus pandemic hit uh, ASEAN, at least at first glance, seemed rather unprepared or not reacting sufficiently, not coordinating responses in the region, um, and in fact has met with many criticism, including uh, the ones uh, about it's really whether the pandemic is exposing its weaknesses or it is uh, apt for the task or it is uh, really a lofty aspiration of creating um, community. Do you think those judgments are fair, or uh, are we just criticising ASEAN by default now?
6: Hong, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you this afternoon and I think it's a very interesting debate as to whether the COVID-19 pandemic has actually shown ASEAN's strengths or actually exposed further some of its existing weaknesses as it's had to respond to this crisis. As you say, some some have suggested that ASEAN has not responded well despite the fact that it's experienced previous pandemic threats, and had to look at coordination of health policies across the region. I think what's been interesting in the current circumstance is while the individual members of ASEAN have had very different experiences nationally of COVID-19 and the crisis, you know, from Singapore on the one hand, who moved so very quickly and early, but have had a very significant incidence, through to Indonesia, which responded late and has really struggled, all the way through to Vietnam, which um, is being held up as a best-in-class example. What has happened in ASEAN is at the regional level, ministers across different portfolios and sectors have actually come together, at least in dialogue, very quickly. So early on, ASEAN foreign ministers organized a video conference in early February to actually ensure that they were on the same page in responding to COVID-19. They agreed a joint statement and interestingly set out nine priority actions for ASEAN to take. Now, as we all know, ASEAN releasing joint statements is not an unusual thing. The interesting question is what happened on those priority actions? Moving on, at the same time, ASEAN Economic Ministers met, ASEAN Defence Ministers met, and ASEAN Health Ministers have met to all discuss common responses. On the economic front, the ASEAN Economic Ministers stressed the importance of maintaining ASEAN supply chains and facilitating access um, to inputs, particularly for SMEs, which, of course, is very important, On the defence front, the ASEAN Defence Minister's meeting last month um, stressed the importance of organising joint drills in ASEAN on disease prevention and control among the military um, medical forces. Again, quite interesting that they came together quite quickly and have agreed sets of priority actions. So at the sort of institutional and dialogue level, ASEAN has probably done what it does best, get together, have meetings, and really work to at least share experience and try and chart some common directions. In terms of the actual performance, as you suggested in your opening comments, perhaps the report card has been a little more mixed. I think despite the commitment to coordination, there's three areas where we've seen quite significant divergences in response, which have had real public health ramifications. And those would be, despite a commitment to coordination, you've had hugely varying levels of testing across ASEAN countries, with some countries lagging significantly and beyond Singapore, none really reaching a statistically significant level of testing at this point. Um, Secondly, on the border and immigration control policies, there's been very little coordination across the group as a whole. And given that almost 40% of ASEAN travel is actually amongst its member countries, that's produced quite a lot of chaos. And it's actually had a significant impact on the movement of people, including at-risk foreign workers, I think the third area where perhaps there is scope for strengthening the ASEAN level response is on regional supply chains and ensuring, in particular, that regional supply chains for medical supplies remain robust. Hong, I'm very interested in your views of ASEAN's ability to respond to this crisis and how you would assess the strength of its response to date. Also, very interested in. The role that Vietnam has played as ASEAN chair in directing the response and particularly given that Vietnam has had quite an effective domestic response and in fact has been held up as a role model for others in its efforts. Yes, I agree that um, it is incredibly challenging for our
5: region, such diverse as ASEAN. Um, and as you mentioned, they're very different national responses and it would be, uh, challenging to expect ASEAN to respond in a timely manner and in any crisis, the crisis response and crisis management is about the timeliness and the golden window is uh, very early on. So any coordination takes extra time. And so actually it is uh, good that the national response had been uh, quick enough. Obviously, uh, regional responses uh, would be uh, expected and welcome at a later stage because in the early response, Um, For example, we see even in Australia, federal states and and local government make their own decisions about lockdowns and schools opening and state borders closure um, beyond the federal government jurisdiction. So it's hard to expect in such a big region as ASEAN to have also a very timely and coordinated and ready response from regional institutions like ASEAN that doesn't have. Uh, simply that jurisdiction is not even a supranational, it's only intergovernmental institution and uh, might be mindful of the non-interference principle, the most important principle in the association of uh, Association Asian nations. So it's hard to expect ASEAN to be a very uh, responding very early on. Uh, what is important is, like you said, sharing information be in constant communication, which the ASEAN heads have been. They even have a WhatsApp group where they share live information about uh, the social and health policies that they undertake at the moment. And very importantly, um, it is beyond uh, just the ASEAN uh, uh, region. The the disease is, is much more sp- uh, spread than in the previous cases of outbreaks. So it's critical for the ASEAN nations to speak to uh, other neighbours in uh, Asia, from China to Korea to Japan, as well as further down here in Australia and, and uh, uh, beyond. So it's very much a global issue. So it's important for ASEAN to only, only look at the issue and. um keep those regional dialogues beyond ASEAN as well, which uh, as uh, you mentioned, Vietnam as the chair of this year has been doing. It has um, stood up to the to the challenge of moving a lot of those meetings, very traditional uh, ASEAN style diplomacy uh, of the retreat and meetings uh, in person into the online platform, uh, which is very uh, unusual for the leaders to see each other Uh, on the video, but they have kept the dialogue going and I think it's important uh, for the uh, uh, later on management of the crisis and keep keep sharing information about the virus, uh, the scientific discovery about the virus, uh, information about tests, um, and also the updates about the research uh, about the vaccines, um, and also keeping the, uh, the initiatives of training scientists, epidemiologists, um, uh, keeping the early woman warning systems, uh, sharing technology of monitoring and testing and contact tracing. So all of that, I think Vietnam has taken into its agenda very very swiftly because it didn't come to the 2020 chair with, with those agenda and with this particular in mind. It has much more uh, focus on the so-called traditional security uh, in the beginning uh, as it came to the uh, chairmanship, but obviously, uh, this is the biggest challenge for the region and for the world, uh, and but, but for ASEAN for this year to successfully. Uh, manage the crisis and also look for more coordinated response in the later phase of um, that includes both economic recovery and return uh, of opening the borders and people's movement, as well as keep the trade agenda, as well as keep this uh, critical supply, medical supply in, in particular um, in motion. So those are, are the things that uh, I know that Vietnam as a chair has been paying Particular attention to, but also raising awareness of other uh, potential crises that might may take the same time while the pandemic is taking the place. And Penny, yeah, speaking of uh, the regional responses and you know the future of regional mu- multilateralism, not just ASEAN but also beyond to ASEAN Plus Three to East Asia Summit, where uh, Australia is also a part of. What do you think uh, we are, what type of multilateralism we are heading towards and what do you think Australia's role would be in the future of regional cooperation?
6: Well, thank you. That's, um, That's a great question. I think in terms of regional response, it's interesting that ASEAN moved very quickly to convene a summit with the plus three countries, China, Japan and Korea. On the regional response to COVID-19. Separately, ASEAN health ministers have actually engaged with the United States and with, um, with the Japanese, with a variety of other partners. What has been missing at ministerial or head of government level is action under the East Asia Summit banner. The East Asia Summit, as you know, is an initiative that brings together the 10 ASEAN countries, the plus three, so China, Japan, and Korea, together with Australia, India, New Zealand, the United States, and Russia. Now, many people have suggested that that group is very large and unwieldy, and quite frankly, in the past, has really been um, thought of as a talk shop, rather than as a um, as an institution and an initiative which is going to deliver real value in the region, but from an Australian perspective, Australia puts huge emphasis on the East Asia Summit as a means of engaging with the countries in the Indo-Pacific more broadly. And it is notable that during the pandemic crisis, that the EAS has actually only met at ambassadorial level via video conference. And despite coordination of regional responses to health threats being part of the agenda in the past and crisis response um, and regional threat preparedness having been elements, disaster preparedness having been elements of the agenda, it simply hasn't really come to the fore as a mechanism for all of those things that you've indicated are so important. Information sharing, broad coordination of policy, Um, commitments to, for example, keeping open supply chains, commitments to exchanging information about the pandemic and its impact. So I am really curious as to why that hasn't happened and whether there is a role for Australia going forward in activating that grouping in the context of the transition through the COVID crisis and beyond, or whether, in fact, the fact that the EAS has not been activated, really is something we should look at going forward as raising a red flag about its effectiveness as a regional grouping. There's
5: still a lot to do, I'm sure, and but we can only be safe if um, all of us and all around, around us are safe. So multilateral cooperation is really more important than ever. Thank you for sharing your insight with us, Penny, and very much appreciate your time. Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: That's all for this episode of Policy, Guns and Money. Thank you for tuning in and thank you to all our guests for your time and your expertise. As always, if you'd like to share your opinions or thoughts on the topics we've discussed here today, please tweet us at ASPI underscore org and we will be back with another episode next week.
3: See you then.